Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. It's a pretty common belief among Americans that everyone ought to get out and vote, that civic duty demands that you head to the polls on election day and pick a candidate. People who refuse to vote, whatever their reasons might be, get criticized for not living up to their responsibilities as citizens. But is this attitude justified? Is it in fact the case that each of us ought to vote and that we're doing something wrong if we abstain? And if you have such a duty, what does it entail? Is every vote a good one, no matter who you vote for or how much or how little you know about politics and policy? Do we have a duty to vote or do we have a duty instead to vote well? Our guest today is Julia Maskivker, Associate Professor of Political Science at Rollins College. Her new book is The Duty to Vote. Welcome to Free Thoughts. Thank you so much for having me. So given the title of your book, I think I may already know the answer <laughs> to this question, but I have to confess that I haven't voted in an election in 20 years. And I've never voted. Am I doing something wrong? I would say so. <laughs> I would say you're doing something morally wrong if the reason why you're not voting or never voted is that you simply don't care or couldn't care less. If that's the reason, I think you are doing something wrong. So is it is it the voting that's required, is it does it have characteristics to it? Can I go in and write in Mickey Mouse uh, into the write in spot of the ballot and then leave? Would, would that be accomplishing the duty or would it be a more moral action than not voting? No. Yeah, that, that's a good question. My case for the duty to vote is not um, a case for the duty to vote simpliciter. It's a case for the duty to vote well or minimally well. That is, you should vote responsibly with the minimum amount of information of what's at stake in the election. Um, so in that sense, it's a little bit more demanding than just showing up at the polls. That would not be a good thing to do in my in my view. So I wanna I wanna unpack some of that because there's there's a lot of things in there that are, you know, what is what is minimal mean, what does well mean and so on. But before I get to that, I guess ask a broader question, which is just what is voting for? Like if if we're supposed to be doing this thing, we're doing it for some reason. So what's what's the value of doing it? Yeah, sure. So voting in my view it's an instrumental activity. We may vote for several reasons, but the most important one should be that we want to affect collectively, I mean, um, um, as, as a country, as an electorate, we want to affect the quality of institutions. And more particularly, we want to affect the quality of policies or policy outcomes, as political scientists would say. So um, voting has a point. It has a function. And simply put, you could say that at a minimum, you could say voting gets the bums out, right? It, it leaves them out of a job, if you will. Voting puts governments in power and it makes them lose power. So in that sense, it achieves justice or at least uh, the, the, the avoidance of injustice in that respect. And does this mean that the duty is... So I mean we could think about voting in two ways I think related to what you're saying, which is one is voting in the aggregate, the process of having elections in which some portion of the electorate votes accomplishes a certain set of things, whether that's leading to better policy or at least changing government or whatever. So, so voting as like a general category of activity. 
um, versus voting on an individual case basis. So whether like I, Aaron or Trevor have an obligation to to participate in this activity and there might be there might be slightly different moral considerations there. And just to clarify what I mean for like our audience, um, farming is something that we need like the world needs people farming and it would be bad if nobody farmed. But at the same time, that's not an argument that any individual person must become a farmer. Right. So you're, there, there are a lot of arguments there that need to be unpacked. Um, I would say first, obviously, the, the most sort of basic piece of sort of political wisdom or political science wisdom is that, yeah, your single little vote will not tilt the election. At least in large elections, your vote really will not make a difference. We know this from reading many political science accounts of voting, in particular, scientist uh, Anthony Downs in his celebrated book, An Economic um, Case for Democracy, he argues voting is irrational because from an individual standpoint, you won't make a difference. Fair enough. I don't argue with that argument. I think it's correct. What I argue in the book is that collectively speaking, as a collective activity, when many people vote, voting may have a discernible impact in the election. And for that reason, we have a moral duty to partake of that collective activity that is voting. We have a duty to partake of the collective activity that elections make possible. So does it matter, for example, will the duty change? Because um, if we are, there's some element of collectivity here. And so if you are a Republican in California with the with very little likelihood of actually having anything change, even if everyone got together and did it at the same time and every Republican got out and voted versus being a Republican in Alabama, would that vary your duty? Right. So the problem with the American sort of political landscape is that you have the Electoral College, which is not a reality in many other countries, right? So it is true that your vote may be heavier or may matter more in some states than in others. Um, and it may be the case that it may not make a difference what you do in, in, in states like California. Um, but even even for a, rep, a House member, like a Republican in California without the Electoral College, even if every Republican got together and did that, they probably wouldn't do anything to change the election. Well, then – we have to think about what structural reforms also should hand, go hand in hand with this case for the moral duty to vote. I devote a whole chapter to this issue in the book. Um, just, just because the wrong type of institutions or problems like gerrymandering exist doesn't mean that voting in the abstract as a moral duty makes no sense. You may say, well, in the case of the United States, the duty doesn't seem to be as effective as it should be. But that doesn't mean that this is the reality in other countries or that it should be the reality all the time. Does this argument apply more broadly? So if there is any there, – there are lots of things that I can do in the world to make the world a better place, both, both politically or non-politically. They're just to kind of improve, improve the lot of myself and others. There are many activities I can take. And 
some of those activities have a very low probability of actually making the world better, like a vanishingly small one. But there's there's always a chance. Does does your does the argument you're articulating mean that in every instance where such a opportunity, even if the probability is vanishingly small, presents itself, I have some degree of <laughs> obligation to do it? Right. No, that's a great question. No, I, I, of course, there, there are many ways in which we can better the world. It's funny because opponents of my view usually say, well, there are many other things that are much more effective than voting. And in the book, I question that argument. I say, well, you want to fight global poverty by donating to charity. I'm sure your single donation will not make a shred of a difference. Or uh, you want to fight um, climate change by driving a, a, a ecologically friendly vehicle. I'm sure your action doing that will not really change the quality of air uh, in the area where you live. So I, I don't think that it's extremely clear or at least patently clear that many other activities are much more effective from an individual point of view than voting is. Um, no, but that was not the question. The question was, do I think that if you're obligated to help society by voting, then you're also obligated to help society by doing anything else? I, I don't think that's the case. My argument is that voting is morally unique in a sense that many other activities are not because voting installs people in power. Government authorizes, um, voting authorizes governments to um, to govern, to do their job juridically and legally. So it is a very distinctive morally and practically activity that many other ways of helping others do not, do not achieve. And because of that, we do have a special obliga obligation to do that, that we may not um, that we may not have when it comes to other ways of helping people. Is it is it problematic when the use of voting to legitimize or uh, authorize authoritarian and violent regimes? I mean, it's it's sort of interesting that your kind of worst dictatorships on the planet are usually called the People's Republic of something. Oh, and they yeah. and they claim to be democratic and I mean often it's it's a complete farce. But in places where people did vote and upon that person taking power, they commit extreme acts of hor horrible acts, immoral acts, but then claim that the people voting is actually what allows them to commit the horrible acts. Is is that is that a problem in terms of using democracy to legitimize those kind of behaviors? Oh, well, of course. I mean, my argument does not does not cover cases of 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 non democratic government. Of course, I mean, elections put in power tyrants and authoritarian rulers, but elections also put good rulers in power. They do both things. I mean, we can't we can't say elections don't matter, or we shouldn't we shouldn't resort to them uh, because sometimes, many times, tyrants are putting power through them. Um, that would be that would be ridiculous. Then what's left? How do you choose? Well, it's, a, it's interesting. Well, even if they're not a tyrant, <clears throat> excuse me, if the government is doing something, uh, for example, one reason that that I don't vote in many of these elections is for like for example, I think the drug war is the most immoral thing the federal government has ever done, except for slavery. And if I'm given a choice of a candidate. Both of whom want to fight the drug war. 
Um, and so I don't actually have the moral choice available to, available to me. Um, and and the other and the other issues, you know, maybe not even as important that they vary on this one, and they have little differences here. So even voting for one of them as a method of actually authorizing in a way that feels immoral to me, authorizing the drug war. And if all the candidates are for the drug war, then if I have to vote for one of the candidates, I am authorizing it in some way. That's the way I view it. And that's why I don't do it. Right. Well, yeah, that's a fascinating point. It's uh, the question of lesser evil voting. Should you vote for the lesser of two or more evils or should you always vote on principled grounds? And I'm actually writing a paper on that right now. Listen, I agree with you. I, I, I about the drug war, but I do think that some rulers or some candidates or some politicians are much worse than others. Case in point, the president of the United States. <laughs> yep. I think I think you know I may not like the present candidates because I'm opposed to their policies on the drug war or, or an abortion or the welfare state or whatever that is. But I may believe that some of them are much better and much more preferable than what we have currently in power. And because of that, I am going to exercise my right, uh, fulfilling my duty of Samaritan help, as I explain it in the book, and I will vote so that the greater evil is ousted from the seat of government. And I think you should do that too. Uh, on that then, that this question of principled voting, because um, that kind of raises an interesting point about your vote as – there's there's two ways that I think your vote can be – we can think of your vote as valuable. One is the instrumental, which you've mentioned, which is you know the – your vote goes towards determining who wins the election and then who wins the election is going to set policy and we would rather that the someone who's going to set good policy or at least not as bad policy wins the election. So it's vote is instrumental. Um, but another value of the vote is – and this kind of ties into I think what Trevor was saying is – Voting as um, signaling effectively that you're saying like even if even if my side loses like a um, and there's there's questions about whether like mandates are real things in political science um, but but we can say that you know a candidate who wins overwhelmingly that looks like he has more of the support of the public than a candidate who barely ekes out a victory and and so there can be a case where we say like look. Even if I vote for a candidate who I know is not going to win, if they get a substantial portion of the vote, enough that they're noticed, that kind of signals to politicians that, hey, there are people out there who care a lot about the this particular answer on these issues. And but there's a tension there, obviously. Like there's there's the tension of voting, you know, a vote for the person who I think it's worth signaling that their values matter. Might mean not voting for a person who has who's a lesser evil but has a slightly greater chance of winning. And so, how do you go into an election, go into the choice, like weighing those things against each other? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great question. Listen, I think the devil is in the details. It all depends on how evil the greater evil is, <laughs> and um, how um, how important it is that he or she is ousted. Um, I, I would say that the, the signaling function of uh, the vote is a very important one. I, I, I would say it's also an instrumental one, at least in the long term it is, because you, you do want to affect policy outcomes in the long term by telling the politician you're voting against that he or she is doing something wrong and therefore should change. 
their uh, their their actions or policy preferences. But I, I do think that when the situation is abysmal and the danger is is great and serious, you do have a duty to leave the signaling um, um, objective aside and 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 vote to oust the potentially tyrannical or unjust person in power. I think that should be your duty. So it, it, it depends on what the circumstances are. It depends on the magnitude of the greater evil. It depends on how, um, um, how, how serious and menacing the threat is. And then, so I, I can't give you a straightforward answer. It all depends on what the, the situation in the particular context is. In this context today, I think the, 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 the the signaling goal should should take the back seat to the more um, to the more urgent need to uh, end this administration's tenure. And then, what about uh, the strength of this duty? So, I want to tease out kind of how strong this duty is, because we can have lots of duties that then range very much on these are ones where you know under. No circumstances should you violate this duty and then we can have minor ones where it's just like, you know, if if the opportunity exists, you should take it. So the strength of this duty compared to the costs of voting because – and we will still get into like what it means about well and what goes into that. But but just the simple act of voting has costs. Like it's it takes time. Um, it takes more time if you can't do a mail-in ballot. Uh, is some people you don't have to take time off of work or like there are, there are opportunity costs involved in voting. Is there a point at which the costs can be sufficiently high to mean that it's kind of okay to violate the duty? All right. Yeah, so many things here. First, I don't argue that the duty is never to be overridden. There may be personal considerations, personal situations that justify the person not voting. The, the most sort of trivial or simple example that I give in the book is that, well, if you're caring for a sick relative on election day, uh, it may be your duty to stay and take care of them instead of go vote. Other more sort of serious dilemmas may present themselves. Um, the, the, the issue of sort of the more abstract or analytically interesting issue of opportunity costs in voting is, is I have much to say about that. What I argue is that, well, of course, the opportunity costs of voting may be higher for some people, but that's not necessarily a natural fact. Um, we as a society may may make those costs higher for no reason, for no justified reason. Say, um, if, if 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 we make election day on a Tuesday, well, it may be it may be a bad idea to do that for working people. Maybe a holiday or a Sunday will be a better option like the rest of the world does it. Um, you know, hurdles or obstacles that we hear today exist, like government ID being required by certain people that may not have the means to uh, have these documents in hand all the time. All these things can be reformed. They're not necessarily an act of nature. Uh, but, but the issue of opportunity costs also has a different dimension. Um, Usually my opponents argue that, well, voting is really costly because you have to get that right information to do so responsibly. And that, that is really a high cost. The argument is um, usually the assumption is that because you need to know a lot, um, a lot of 
economic knowledge, uh, political science knowledge, um, a lot of technical, if you will, knowledge. It almost seems as if you need a PhD in order to be a good voter when you read these accounts against my position or against voting more generally. It, I, I challenge that line of argument in my book. I do not think that voting minimally well for regular citizens in society requires PhD type of knowledge. I do agree that it requires some type of knowledge, but I don't think this knowledge is extremely hard or difficult to obtain under the right circumstances. Um, I also argue that the opportunity costs of voting are not necessarily costs that will make or alter our our ways of living life as we as we deem best. Uh, voting really doesn't alter our plans of life in a profound, significant manner. As, for example, not being able to drive a highly polluting vehicle does. Some people may say, well, you know, I do want clean air in my community, but I do not want to quit driving my highly contaminating um, car because I enjoy driving it so much. So I won't. Well, you may say, well, that's not really a good thing to do, but I understand why you do that. It's your way of life. It will be costly for you to stop doing that. But voting in episodic uh, elections every four years, I don't think that carries the same um, um, burden. Uh, so f for those reasons, I, I don't think that the argument that voting is costly is that high. Do people who are going to vote for Donald Trump have a duty not to vote? Well, yeah, um, that's a good question. We do have a duty not to vote badly. This is Jason Brennan's position in his book on the ethics of voting. Uh, who can argue with that? Of course, you you have a duty not to harm others. You have a duty not to do things that will affect others negatively uh, for no justified reason. Um, so, but that doesn't leave you morally off the hook. Uh, you do have a duty to vote responsibly. If you can't do that or won't do that, then you won't. But the, the the fact that you're not ready to fulfill that duty or you can't fulfill that duty doesn't mean that the duty doesn't exist. Um, say, if I'm driving drunk <laughs> down the highway and uh, I slow down because I'm aware that I'm drunk and I don't want to run over people, I don't deserve praise for being a careful drunk driver. I shouldn't have gone drunk in the first place, right? <laughs> so. Um, my first duty would have been to um, not drive under the influence of alcohol. So the first duty that I'm arguing are I'm arguing for is a duty to 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 get enough information to vote responsibly. The fact that some people won't be able to do that or or won't want to do that doesn't mean that the duty is not stringent. You mentioned the every four years <clears throat> a bit ago, and so does it matter to the election because you, you we talk about president in a lot of different ways but there's of course a lot of voting systems you can imagine ones that exist in the world and hypothetical ones of different sort where you vote every day on very minute things in your life of which the government or you vote four years but what about say school board elections or these kind of local elections that are on off years of which which have different levels of you know comptroller state comptroller dog catcher things like this does the duty still exist in the same way there yeah good question no no my case my case is it's my case is this you have a samaritan duty to vote 
to help others, right? In the same way as you, if you're driving down the road, you see someone having a heart attack and it wouldn't be costly for you to stop and call 911 on your cell phone. If you don't do that, you're a bad person. I say, if you don't vote <laughs> to help society in the way in which a good Samaritan would, then you're, you're sort of morally delinquent in a way. Uh, so Samaritan duties of aid are only stringent or valid if they're not costly enough. Voting every time there's a single election at the communal or local level, which happens a lot in this country, um, would would run afoul of of, of that Samaritan requirement. In, in order to be a good Samaritan, you need to be a hero. Um, um, Samaritan duties of justice are supposed to be easy or relatively easy to fulfill. And from a political science perspective, there's this phenomenon that we call or refer to as voter fatigue, which, as I said before, is quite common in many districts in the United States. Too many elections at the same time, too many things to vote for at the same time. People get confused and tired, fatigued. Um, actually, political science work suggests that if elections were not that um that frequently put on top of each other on the same ballot, people will probably be better equipped to know or understand what they're voting for. It there does seem to be though with with these smaller elections like a a counterbalancing factor, which is if if a large portion of our reason to vote is instrumental, that we are, you know, the Samaritan duty that we're executing is to improve the world through better politics and policy. Um, are the smaller the election or the fewer people who participate in it, um, the more likely my vote is to actually have an instrumental effect. So as, as you said, like the, you know, the chances of my vote determining the presidential election are effectively zero. Um, but the chances of my vote determining a local school board is higher than zero. Um, and and so does that does that kind of increase the the strength of the duty in in the sense that I can have more effect and even if the thing I'm voting for, school board's not going to necessarily impact lives as much as the president, although it could. Like it, you know, we I think we in this country we often underestimate how much politics happens at the local level and how important local people are. Um, but does that would that cut against this thing of like voter fatigue being a cost that maybe trumps the duty and instead says like, look, no, you can actually be more effective in the local and so in some ways it may be more important for you to vote in local elections and skip the presidential one? Right. Um, yeah, listen, it's true that the fewer people voting, uh, the more effective or pivotal uh, your your vote will be. There's no doubt about that. But as you said, it's not clear that a that an election for the school board will have the same effects or even comparable effect in terms of justice or good governance as voting for for a senator or a or a president. So I would say, um, again, the devil is in the details. I would say no. There, there's there's really no comparison between arguing that that presidential elections have a clear impact on the quality of governance and. This, this local or low-level elections, collectively, they may amount to something important, but but again, that that would entail that you would have to vote in each one of them, and that would that would be too burdensome. I I don't have a problem admitting that, and my argument does not argue that you should go to such lengths in order to fulfill your duty of Samaritanism towards society. It will not it would not be correct to say that it would. 
I think let's then turn to that that question. Let's so let's stipulate then that yes, we have a, we have a duty to vote. But you've mentioned several times um, that you have a duty to vote well. Um, I think you in the book you say you you have a you also have the duty to acquire what you call a minimal epistemic competence um, and vote with a sense of the common good in order to support fair governance. Um, so let's go into what that that actually entails. Like how much if we're asking people to vote well, we're asking them to acquire sufficient knowledge. What do we mean by that? How much do people need to know? Because I I mean I sit here like I've been working at the Cato Institute for 10 years and kind of you know as immersed in the American political scene as you can get in that time um, and I still feel like there's huge amounts about policy that I don't know and and most people aren't going to do what I do and in fact I recommend most of you don't do what I do uh, but is what's what's that level that's required before it's like acceptable to step into the voting booth right so so yeah, that's a good question. Where's the cutoff line, right? I said before, you need to be a PhD in economics or political science in order to vote well, but at the same time, you need to know something. So what's the cutoff line, if you will? Um, so obviously, there's no mathematical question, uh, answer to that, but um, there's, there's, there's a huge literature uh, on voting behavior and, and political psychology that deals with this question. It's, it, it, it's a literature that actually detractors of my position pay very little attention to and don't, don't really explain, which is the heuristics literature or the cognitive shortcuts literature that, that people like Lupia or McCubbins in Michigan argue that um, in order to vote minimally well, there are certain things that people should know, but not all type of political knowledge is necessary. Strictly speaking, it's not necessary to have. So you may really not need to know who your representative is uh, in Congress or in the Senate, but but you may need to know whether they are a Republican or a Democrat. And you may need to know what the main ideological differences between these two parties are. And by these, I mean really roughly the main differences uh, and, and that may be sufficient to cast a minimally informed vote. And, and people do this all the time. They may not necessarily know anything about labor economics or, or, or taxes or what causes inflation, but they may know that, you know, they're, they're Democrats and so they'll, they'll go and read a New York Times editorial and they'll know more or less where to, where to stand. This is a, a heuristic or a, or a cognitive shortcut that, 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 a lot of people may take a, a, a cognitive shortcut is an action that is supposed to save us effort and work necessary to acquire information um, because it's in, we may not we may not have the time or the capacity to do this by ourselves. So it's a way of saving time and effort that is effective enough to give us the information that we need. It seems interesting because. <clears throat> There's a from our perspective, if you're especially working in the this sort of DC world, um, I see I see your point about heuristics, and I think it's you know a lot of people can do basic voting uh, if they just know party and things like this. But of course, in in Washington, the fact that the that these parties, the, the, what's actually going on underneath the party lines, the kind of things that people don't pay attention to, uh, and the 
people in power don't want them to pay attention to this uh, because they if these things were exposed or if it were widely known, it would be a huge issue. So they sort of bank on the fact that people are ignorant enough to just go off of party and will not vote actually well enough maybe when it comes down to some of the big issues because they'll just a straight D, D ticket or a straight R ticket and leaving all these other things in place. So they're actually – they're sustaining a system in many ways of complete injustice um, and immorality because of the sort of rational ignorance that comes with voting in the heuristic thing in order for them to do their dastardly deeds behind the scenes. Oh, I mean, I agree completely with you. There's there's, there's a high degree of elite domination or media frames, you know, um, newspapers or TV outlets, news outlets sort of uh, hammering our heads with a particular type of discourse and, and, and political scientists study this. The idea here is that there, there, there is an array of reasons, structural reasons why people may not know as much as they should know or may not be interested in politics as much as it would be good that they were. Um, opponents of my position never talk about this, never talk about the structural uh, problems in the way in which the political system is designed. It's sometimes also the economic situation may cause some of these problems. If there's too much income inequality, um, the poor may not know as much as they're relatively better off because education and income level, you know, they go hand in hand. Um, but detractors of my position never talk about this. All they do is emphasize a sort of individual level cognitive flaws that millions of citizens evince and listen i don't disagree with the fact that voter ignorance is a is a is a bad problem it would be blind it would be really really idiotic on my part to do that to 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 not recognize that problem what i argue in the book is that com the conversation has been a little unbalanced uh, there are grounds to not be that pessimistic about the possibility that this problem can be Assuaged, right? We we can work on particular reforms, political reforms, educational reforms that may increase uh, the the level of political knowledge across the population. From the perspective of, I guess, call it common good voting, which seems to be the you know the end goal. Like that's what we want is we want people more people to vote, and we want them to vote in a way that advances the common good. Um, do do people who look more the way that you think more voters should, so possess more more knowledge of this stuff, do they vote closer to the common good than people who maybe are beneath that epistemic cutoff and probably shouldn't have voted? Okay. So let, this is a contentious question, right? What is the common good? Because you and I may have the same educational level, maybe equally smart, and we may probably disagree on substantive issues on what the common good is, right? So I, I, I do recognize this problem. I tackle it in the, in the, in the book, uh, in the chapter on, on what it means to vote with care. I, I do argue that voting with, with a common good in mind entails one, one thing. It doesn't entail agreement on policy issues or even what justice is really, but it entails a particular mindset or perspective, Right, it's, I call it the fair-mindedness or impartiality perspective, where sort of you try to put yourself in the shoes of others, and sort of you ask yourself, well, would this policy or this candidate or this party 
what they're proposing, would it be acceptable mostly to many other citizens or am I choosing this simply because it benefits me? Am I voting only on the basis of my self-interest and advantage or am I being mindful of the needs of others? And of course, so this is, if you will, a way of thinking. It doesn't necessarily result in in agreement on policy and or even philosophies of justice, but I argue that this mindset is enough. And and we know from political science research from decades and decades ago and even today that people vote with a common good in mind. We call it the so- sociotropic voting. So this is not this is not a high bar. Now you need more than this. You also need epistemic uh, competence, which is basically knowledge, information, factual. Um, um, so I go back to, to what I was talking about before, the literature and cognitive heuristics or cognitive shortcuts, I think should be paid much more attention than, than it is by detractors of my position. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of hope there. And, and, and also this idea that a lot of what people don't know or don't care to know um, is not an act of God or an, or an act of or a fact of nature. It, it, these things can be these things can be changed if the right political reforms are undertaken. So, for example, we know that civic education has disappeared from uh, American schools curricula. Uh, almost. Uh, This wasn't the case decades ago. And we actually know from political science studies that people used to know more before, or at least cared before, or voted more often before than they do now. Um, So I think there are a lot of things, details that have to be talked about that are not necessarily paid attention when we argue, well, there's no duty to vote because people don't know what they're doing. Well, I guess what I what I'm curious to try to tease out is the relationship between those characteristics you're discussing. So people saying, I, you know, I'm voting out of a sense of the common good. I'm voting not selfishly, but I'm voting for the benefit of everyone. And and that I have I have a certain degree of political knowledge. So the relationship between those characteristics of the voters and the the actual things that they vote for. And so whether increasing those gets us – if they, again, the, the goal is to have election results that produce more of the common good than the alternative election results. Is it the case that people who vote for candidates or policies that we might consider contrary to the common good, are they in fact doing that because – they're voting either selfishly, um, what they perceive to be selfishly, or because they're they're ignorant, or instead are they doing it because they they know stuff about politics um, and they their vote they think that they know what's best for people, but they have different conceptions of those things. Um, and so, so what I mean is, like, would would people right now who are say ignorant voters or the kinds of voters who you think probably shouldn't vote if if they were to be better educated in you know get more civics classes um would do we have evidence that they would vote better or would they simply vote the same kind of policies that they have now but i guess they would be better at arguing for them <laughs> yeah that's an excellent question 
Um, so the problem of self-rationalization, right? Several things, right? You, you someone may may vote for for an idea of the common good that's really selfish and self-centered or self-serving, and they some sort of rationalize it and find a way to justify it on the basis of what other people need. Um, this 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 happens all the time. Um, now the, the the question you ask is: Would this type of people or or the people that vote for things that are contrary to the common good, if they were to know more or become more knowledgeable, wouldn't that be worse for democracy? Because now they will be able to justify it better. Sure, that's that's a possibility from the perspective of my theory, though. I do argue that this impartiality argument, this this requirement to vote, if you will, with a with a with an open mind in a fair minded way, not everything goes here. There are certain policy outcomes or results that would not be allowed by this perspective. So say, if I think that the common good requires that women will n- never be allowed to serve a public office or or that gay people never be allowed to marry, uh, then that clearly falls outside of the orbit of the impartiality logic. Basically, um that's not the common good. You don't understand what the common good and you're doing something very wrong when you vote with that idea in mind. So that's a philosophical part. Now, your question is more practical or empirical. I, I, I don't know what would happen. It may be the case that that happens. That doesn't necessarily mean that the duty is not stringent. Maybe it means that um, we should do a better job of educating these people or identifying them and trying to persuade them that what they're doing is wrong. I can imagine someone listening to this and I'm going to kind of overstate your case to to clarify. So I'm not I'm not this I know this isn't actually what you're arguing, but someone someone could listen to this and think that the the view that you're articulating is at some level like anti-democratic because the purpose of democracy is for people to get together, a citizenry to get together and hash out what they believe to be the common good and the best way to achieve it and then through voting, a, a particular conception of that wins out and that's the one that we institute at least until the next election. And that's that's the purpose of de- democracy is because we know that there are disagreements about this stuff. And what you're saying is basically – and again, I'm overstating um, – unless you – agree with a particular conception of the common good, you shouldn't participate. And so the purpose of democracy is simply to advance this particular conception of the common good and and there's something wrong with voting when we get something else, which would seem to run counter to the perceived purpose of democracy. Right. Well, yes, that's an excellent question. Listen, I mean my view of the common good is a thin view of the common good, if you want to call it that way. I do I do believe that certain things are incompatible with it. Like when you don't treat other people as free and equal or you think violating their basic rights is what the common good requires, then yeah, I'm willing to admit that I don't think that's the right way of conceiving of the common good. And 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 if a democracy were ever to produce that type of consensus, I would be very willing to say that that's an unjust result. Now, uh, a, a liberal, just democracy with the right type of institutions should not 
be able to produce this type of um, consensus, uh, right? We have institutions such as division of powers, uh, judicial review, the Bill of Rights, right? So in a sense, your description of what a democracy can produce is a, is, is a description of a sort of very simple, unchecked, um, sort of rudimentary democracy. You may say, well, it has existed in history. Yes, of course, that doesn't mean that's the democracy we should strive for. Uh, there, basically, there are ways to limit, or we should think about ways to limit the, the tyranny of the majority. And that's not necessarily inconsistent with democracy. I mean, if you go to the Madisonian model of democracy, you go to Federalist 10, for example, paradigmatically, when he taught Madison talks about the problem of faction, that's what he was trying to protect us against, right? Majorities, passionate majorities producing results that violate or uh, jeopardize the rights and liberties of of individuals. In, in a situation of being, say, a libertarian and trying to figure out what you're going to do in a given election, um, and there's also a libertarian candidate uh, that could have purposes for longer term purposes, maybe for building out the candidacy and having more people understand what libertarianism is so you could vote the libertarian candidate and possibly affect the election maybe negatively by not voting for one of the major party candidates. Or you could also decide not to vote for also the purposes of signaling uh, in the way that you see that, say, when Mitt Romney ran in 2012, there was a lot of people who said the problem was that a lot of Republicans didn't come out because he didn't excite them. And so by not coming out, they actually sent valuable information. You could say, I'm not even going to vote in this in this election because I want them to know that I'm disgusted with the choices that they're being offered to me. So then political scientists actually look at the non-voters, the people who usually would vote but didn't vote for some reason and you know, and they actually take that into consideration when they decide who's going to run in the next election. So it actually – you can intentionally in, informed, in an informed way not vote either for the purposes of signaling that or vote for a third-party candidate for the purposes of signaling information too that could ultimately make the world a better place. So that, that would seem to me to be fulfilling the duty in, in its own way. Yeah, yeah. Too too many things here. Good question. It's funny because I would say that, you know, it's it's not really easy for. I think we have a better system than than the U.S. system to register who's dissatisfied with democracy or the candidates, and it's the blank vote, which, ironically, it's very common in countries where voting is compulsory. Like mine, I come from Argentina. Voting is compulsory there. You have the option to not vote for anyone, but instead of sitting it out, you go and you vote in blank. The government counts those votes and then everybody has a very precise idea of who's mad. Uh, I don't think that's the case in the United States. People stay home and don't vote for many reasons. Some of them can't, don't have the transportation needed. Others don't really care, don't even know there's an election. Who knows? There's so many reasons. So you can't really trace it back to dissatisfaction. You may as well trace it back to apathy or ignorance. You don't have that problem with a blank vote. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is your question. Yeah, your question takes us back to the problem of lesser evil voting, which is something I find fascinating. I'm trying to work on right now. So again, you know, I do understand the dilemma here is this. Unfortunately, there's only two parties in this country, which is 
which which is a problem, right? You would say people have a right to have more than two parties to choose from, and um, a lot of people feel dissatisfied or that the, their their policy preferences are not necessarily the, um, honored. I, I understand that, so it, it's not the duty of the of the citizen to to always try to fit in in what's available. It's the duty of the system to provide the citizen with enough choice. So there's a dilemma there, right? Because then how do you do that? Well, you sit it out and you vote for the non-electable candidate. That's that's your first preference because you just want to send a message, right? You want to you say, I'm angry at this. I want more choice or I want this person to be able to make it, even though, you know, he or she won't. Um, but but it all depends on how catastrophic the background in which you're doing this is. Um, if you're going to, I argue, if you're going to take the the if you're going to take the luxury of voting in this way to signal your dissatisfaction or to signal your preference for a minor candidate. And in that sense, you're letting your, you, you, that action is too costly. You're, you're letting democracy potentially fall with it. Uh, if enough people do that, like you do, then collectively you did something very wrong, even though your reasons or your motivation may have been lowable. Um, the consequences of it are going to be bad. And, uh, and so you, you shouldn't. But again, you know, the devil is in the details, as I said before. It all depends on how catastrophic the background is. <laughs> and it, you've mentioned um, Jason Brennan's work a couple of times, um, and he's he's been an occasional guest on this show. And for for listeners, I'm curious how you distinguish like what the difference is between your position of again that citizens that the duty to vote entails this acquiring minimal epistemic competence um, and his position of the epistocracy, which is that we should be the the people who should vote are the knowers because the result is going to be more common good like is there it it seems like there's there maybe there's a degree difference, but that they're somewhat similar. Am I reading that correctly? Sure, I I think the difference between Jason and I is not really as 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 big as it would seem. We we both have an instrumental approach to this issue, but we take different sides of the of the of the question. Um, I I think he clearly has it's 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 very he he doesn't have any faith in the in the capacities of the average voter so he thinks that anything that comes from the representatives should be sort of checked by an epistocratic body uh he ends up arguing it's something like a supreme court that should have a veto the power to veto any legislation that comes from the representatives of the people that's what he ends up arguing for so in that sense it's a different it's a very different approach i think i mean generally i think he 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 thinks that political knowledge or political expertise it's very hard to obtain and that everyone voting or planning to vote should know a great deal of everything that's at stake that's what i challenge uh, i think that's not accurate i think there's plenty of political science research that challenges that view and i do not think that he supports that argument with enough research to make it credible. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm totally convinced, uh, have you said at the beginning, that I've, I've actually never voted. Um, uh, not only because, I mean, 
I'm much more I would be much more in favor of voting for as we previous question with Aaron, like school board and things like this, of which the cost of obtaining the information is pretty high, but the possibilities of affecting the election could be pretty high too. And I just don't know I don't know enough about local politics. Um and on election day, I mean, I might decide to do something different because I haven't learned enough about all these things for and go and volunteer at a charity rather than rather than voting. Um, uh, why? That's the ultimately that's the thing I'm wondering is is why if that if it is a vicious trade off. I mean, if let's say I, I can't do both, um, why shouldn't I volunteer at a charity? Hmm. Right. So yeah, that's a good question. I actually end up. I do argue in the in the book that maybe my argument sort of um, justifies the idea that we have more duties that we would like to admit at first. Um, I have a, a fanciful example that I use in the book to illustrate this point. Think about it in these terms. So you're waiting for the bus with your very good friend who's in crutches, has had an accident. There's no one around, only you two. Uh, your friend needs help boarding the bus. He can't do it by himself. So, but at that point in time, um, your friend also has a lot of credit card debt. So the bus is coming, approaching. You see it coming. And before you help him board the bus, you say, you know what? I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to help you. But here's a check for $1,000. So you start paying off your credit card debt. Isn't that amazing? What a good friend you are. Of course, your friend is very grateful because he needs the money, but he also needs the help boarding the bus. Um, you should do both. <laughs> um, right. So in that sense, I say maybe what this ends up justifying is that we have more duties to help others that we might think of or care to admit. But the fact is that morally is unique. Uh, voting is morally unique because it helps install governments that can affect positively or negatively the, the lives of millions. So it, it wants you to say, hey, I don't have to help you because I just gave you a check. Uh, well, there's reason to th think of you in a, in, a, in a way that maybe it's not the best, morally speaking. You just left your, your friend stranded there. I think voting presents us with, with the same type of situation. It may be true that you have other duties. Maybe you should donate $100 a year to help starving children in Africa, as Peter Singer, a philosopher at Princeton, says you should do that. But that doesn't mean that you're off the hook when it comes to voting. So in that sense, yeah, maybe my argument sort of justifies a more morally demanding picture of what duties we have towards others that you guys would like to to accept and I'm I'm not, I'm okay with that <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.